We'll be looking at verse 24 through 32, and as they, as they head out, I want to start thinking about there's been an interesting kind of whole body of books that have started to come out in the last 20 years, and they're written by sociologists from other countries trying to explain to the world, like, America. And uh, every probably couple weeks in the New York Times book reviews, they have one of these books, and they're really interesting to try and see yourself through the perspective of other people. And uh, one of the ones that was my favorite that has come out uh, a couple years ago is by a uh, Scandinavian sociologist who was trying to answer the question, why are Americans so tall? Because actually, per capita, we're the, the tall, we have the tallest people in the world. And his argument was, we are so tall because of the hormones in the cow's milk. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it was this passioned plea to his Danish dairy farmers to start getting more hormones in the milk so we could be taller. And uh, there was another a couple uh, years ago that was by a sociologist looking at why have so many um, American counterculture utopians been tried and then failed. He said, you can almost tell the history of America by these counterculture utopian societies that are going to come and uh, be this, this, this per- bring in this perfect world, and then they all kind of rise and fall. And it's this fascinating story of all these different counterculture utopias. And it kind of culminated with the counterculture of the 1960s. So maybe some of you remember, you know, the way we're going to usher in, you know, a world uh, with no violence and peace is we're all going to move out somewhere and smoke marijuana and wear tie-dye clothes and play rock and roll, and the world's going to be uh, perfect. And part of the point of the book is the world's actually never perfect. And one of the questions, why? Why is it there's such deep, innate desire for a, a utopia, a community where people thrive, and yet they're so hard to create? Or what are those marks because some of the counterculture utopias, they try and like hit the pause button on history and say, we've come into this perfect time and then we're never going to progress. So like when we were in Kentucky, you'd often see kind of the, this funny dynamic because there's a large Amish population where we were. So you see like the horse and the buggy and the carriage next to, you know, the car at the gas station. And uh, so why? Can you just push the pause button and never progress? Or what are the marks of a true counterculture? And what we have in Ephesians chapter 4, what Paul's going to give us is he's going to give us marks of what a true counterculture is really like. What are the real distinguishing marks? And the part of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is 1 through 3, he's told us about this grand salvation that we can experience through Christ, where we've been raised from spiritual death to life. And then now he's going to unleash us into the world and say there are certain arenas where you have to live that out. You have to live that out in the church. You have to live it out in the world. That's going to be a place of darkness and difficulty. And then you have to live it out in your home. And in this section, he's talking about what does it mean to be different out in the world? And he's going to give us, we're going to look at just four marks in this section where he tells us a real counterculture, a culture that's really unique and different is a culture that's marked by being committed to truth. It's a culture that controls its anger. It's a culture that contributes to one another generously. And it's a culture that's constructive with his words. You know, on the surface of it, it might seem things that are just so simple, but yet can be so profoundly 
powerful and transformative. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to look at those four key marks of a culture that's been transformed or can be a counterculture and then just ask, all right, how are we doing being those kind of people? So let's pick up in verse 24 in Ephesians chapter 4. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So that's the call. Put on the new self. You've been made new. And then he's going to use this clothing imagery that you need to take off certain things that are marks of your old self. And then put on new things that are mark of the new. And so as we read through, just look through what's be take off and then put on. So therefore, take off falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone who's in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So the way we're going to kind of break this down is look at these four different distinguishing marks of a true counterculture. So the first one, I I don't think we have slides for them, but if you have your bulletin you came in, they're on the back. And the first one is a true counterculture is to committed is committed to truth. See that there in verse 25? Therefore, having put away, put off falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we're all members of one another. So what are we to put off? Falsehood. What do we put on? Truth. And then why? It's because we're all members of one another. So this is one of the, the, the central um, foundational pieces of a counterculture or any community that's actually going to thrive. It has to be built upon truth. Truth is the soil that it's going to grow. It's the foundation. And there's a couple things you see here. Notice what the basis of it is. It says because you are members of one another. It says don't speak falsehood about another person because you're actually members. That's actually body language. You know, what would you think if all of a sudden one part of your body started attacking another? Like if your hand just started attacking your leg or your head, you would think, all right, I need some serious help. We actually have a medical condition where one part of the body starts to attack another part of the body. That's cancer. Isn't that what cancer is, where one part of the body is actually attacking the other parts of the body? And so what Paul has actually given us, almost that metaphor, that these type things, falsehood, uncontrolled anger, greed, these are actually soul cancers that will eat you up and then eat your community up. So what are we going to do? How do we deal with these things? Now, there's a couple of things to think about because we might... There's a tendency to hear these kind of things and say, all right, there's, you know, all right, we can, as long as we speak words that are factually true, then we're in the clear. And that's not necessarily what Paul's getting at here. Because you all know you can actually speak words that are technically true, but aren't quite true. Or maybe factually true, but meant to deceive 
when I was babysitting my youngest sister years ago. So I was about 19. It was one of the first times I was watching uh, her, and the parents were going to go away for a week. And they didn't give me high expectations. They just said, we want to come back in the house not to have burned down, and then she'd still be alive. Just make sure one thing, she brushes her teeth every night because she hated to brush her teeth. So my one job was to make my sister brush her teeth each night. And then one night, you know, it was, it was pretty late. We had stayed up watching, I don't know, Peppa Pig till midnight and eating Skittles. And uh, I looked at her and said, Johanna, have you brushed your teeth? And then I could see the four-year-old wheels just spinning. And she smiled and she goes, yes, I have. And then turned around and walked back to her bedroom. And I thought, I, I think I'm being, like, I think I'm being conned by a four-year-old. I said, right, no, 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 wait a second. Come back here. Have you brushed your teeth today? No, oh, no. <laughs> uh, into the bathroom. You understand? So technically true, but meant to deceive. And think about all the different ways we can say things that you know, might just meant to blur the lines between reality and perception. Like we even have a, a phrase for things like white lies. Why do we call them white lies? Because we want to not feel bad about them. But there's still lies. You think, think about the, you know, and we you think about the different ways you do that. Like when, you know, somebody asks you, oh, I'm, I'm moving this Saturday. Can you come help? Oh, I would love to, but I'm going to be out of town. And then your wife says, you're not out of town. Well, you're not going anywhere. Said, well, I'll be out of town on Tuesday, and then I got to catch, you know. Oh, did you finish that project at work? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm almost done. It'll be done tomorrow morning. You haven't even started on it. Why do you say those things? It just kind of comes out. The white lies, oh, they're no big deal. But one thing we do also is the way we stretch the truth is we exaggerate. We can just spin or exaggerate things. You know, spouses can do it when they're arguing and they say, oh, you always, you always do this. You always. And someone always do that? I mean, you know, once a month. Or you say, you never you, you always make plans, and you never think about us. And then what you do is you, you insert those little exaggerations, and what all of those are are hairline fractures on relationships, and eventually stress is coming to cause them to shatter. And it's just exaggerations. I don't know how we live in one of the most uh, hype-saturated societies maybe ever. So I don't know what does it look like to be a distinct community that's committed to truth when you're not going to... Uh, just fill the world with hype. Like for some of you who are in marketing, I don't actually know how you do your job without using hype. Like every single commercial you watch, you just use this toothpaste, your teeth will get two shades wider and you'll never have another problem again in your life. And of course you know that's not true, but you have to do it. So we just live in a world just saturated with exaggeration and, and hype. You see it all the time in social media. I mean, sometimes we're the worst in church where we talk about, oh, this was the most amazing night ever. It's like, well, I mean, it was good, but come on. And so why do we do those things? What would it be like to be a people who are actually committed to truth? But if you think about it, every time you, every time you spin or every time you exaggerate or actually every time you lie... That's actually a diagnostic, you can use that as a diagnostic act. That can be like a little light on your, the, the check engine dashboard of your soul, and you can say, all right, why was I doing that? 
So when something as simple as somebody asks, like, oh, are you free on Friday? And you say, no, I'm not free. When you really are, you just don't want to go. And you say, all right, what am I protecting? What am I loving? Why am I doing these things? Well, it's because you love your freedom, and you don't want anybody to encroach on your freedom. So you'll say things like that. And notice how it's connected that we're all members of one another. That's actually talking about we've been committed to one another. We're in a relationship where we are committed and we live in a culture in which there's so much emphasis on personal freedom that like the God of our age is you have to keep all your options open. And what it means is people no longer make kind of promises or commitments to one another. So it means that truth just kind of implodes. So what does it look like to be a people who are committed to truth? Now let's look at the next thing where he says, a people committed to controlling their anger. And this is a fascinating one, because in verse 26, he starts, he says, Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So here he's talking about anger. And what's interesting is he doesn't say it's wrong to be angry. He says what it's wrong to... Um, what, what is key is how you control it, how it manifests itself in your life. So this is actually worth drilling down a little bit on and saying, all right, what is the appropriate kind of biblical anger? Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So deal with it quickly because you're going to give the devil a place. You're going to give him a foothold. You're going to give him a place in your heart and your relationship. So let's think for a minute, all right, what is actual good anger? Because there's good anger, there's bad anger. How do you know the difference? Tim Keller says the ideal in the Bible is not no anger or blow anger, where you just blow up, but it's slow anger. So what, is, what does that mean? Because we're commanded, be angry, but don't sin. It's actually, you, you realize it's actually uh, a sin in the Bible for you not ever to get angry. But then it's also a sin in the Bible for you to get angry in the wrong way. So how do we navigate the two? So I think one thing to be helpful is just defining, all right, what is, what is anger to begin with? And uh, David Pallison has a wonderful article where he kind of unpacks uh, anger, and he defines it as active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. So active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. He says you always have these three pieces. You have a perceived wrong. You have this state of disapproval. And then you have a motive, spawned, and act. But every act of, uh, or another way to think about it, anger, like this is wrong. Every act of anger is a moral matter. Uh, or another way to think about it, anger is love that's motivated to deal with a threat. So something you love is threatened, so anger is the response to deal with that threat. Now the real question is the diagnostic question. Just like lying can be a diagnostic, why do you do that? Anger can be a diagnostic emotion. What do you love that's being threatened? So you think about anger just as it is. You know, anger uh, can be explosive. It can be dangerous. It can be like the dynamite of the soul. It can pulverize things. Uh, 
one of the med students was teasing with some of the other med students because some of them were upset about one of the tests they had, and they reminded them that it's actually probably bad for your actual health to hold in that anger. And so it's, it's worse than making the bad grade on the test. Don't hold it, because anger actually does terrible things physiologically to your body. You don't hold it in internal uh, stress. Um, so it's bad for your body. It also, when you, you know, anger can be really bad for your decision-making. Like, would you like a strategy to know how to make the worst decisions in life? Get really angry and then decide, whatever it is. How many of you can say in your life you made really good decisions when you were really angry? But one, another thing about anger is that it can be addictive. It can be this emotion that we feed on and we like. So we have to, we have to diagnose it. What is it that's happening that's causing me to get angry? Am I really motivated by genuine evil or am I being motivated by something that is trivial. What am I defending? What do I love most? And it's so easy to excuse it in ourselves and excuse it in others. You know, in every age and stage, we have excuses to excuse people's anger. Anger. So we see it, you know, oh, you know, we're, we're sorry. She's just, she's just teething, or we didn't have a nap, or it's a bad hair day, or we woke up on the wrong side of the bed, or there's just a grumpy old man. And kind of every stage you live in, we have ways where you can excuse the anger. I think one of the reasons why we excuse it is because we know that deep down it exposes us. It really exposes us. So think about it. I'll paint for you a hypothetical that's never happened to me. And then you can use your own kind of adjustments to put yourself to make the analogy true for you. But let's just imagine you're at Walmart and you're with, you know, two or three little children. And they see this purple polka dotted lighty plastic spinny thing that instantly uh, invokes every covetous desire in their heart. And they said, ah, we want this. Can we have this? Can we have this? And you respond, no. And then they throw a fit, throw a temp temper tantrum, throw themselves on the floor and have a fit. And then instantly you get angry. You're angry. But then here's the question, why? Why are you angry? Are you angry because you're embarrassed? And you start making excuses for them. Oh, well, they're just teething. They haven't had a nap. And so are you angry because you're embarrassed? Or are you angry because you recognize that that covetous, uh, uncontrollable greed will actually is a soul cancer that if it doesn't get cut out of their life, it's going to destroy them? See, which is it? There's a good anger and a bad anger. And so much of it just depends on our our motivations. That's why it's so difficult and so important to diagnose. But anger can be one of those things that can actually cause destruction from all around you. I listened to a fascinating interview this past week between um, some uh, ex-soldiers uh, in the military who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they were talking about one of the kind of the great causes of kind of so much uh, PTSD is that uh, you know, it's something like 60% of casualties in the war in Afghanistan are from IEDs. So local um, improvised explosive devices that just blow up and say, what it does to you mentally, where kind of like every place you go in a car, everywhere you step, it, it, there could be an explosion. And they had a, some uh, Vietnam veterans who talked about the similar thing because it was a similar dynamic in, in Vietnam. Um, in, in the war in Vietnam over... 
right at about 60,000 American soldiers died, and it's somewhere close to about 60% were also uh, killed through just the IEDs, booby traps and different uh, local bombs. It was by far the Viet Cong's most effective strategy for attacking the U.S. soldiers, these different um, landmines and things like that. But what's really sad and what's tragic, and you know, all war is tragic, but one of the tragic things is because they, they, they took them and just, just spread them all over the country, just everywhere. So it would get in people's heads so they didn't know. I mean, every little wire could be a tripwire. Every little can could have an explosion in it. But the sad thing is when you just scatter, when you fill your world with that type of explosive, you can't just get it out. And one of the tragedies is since the end of the Vietnam War, 60,000 Vietnamese have actually died on those type of explosives. And so when you just kind of spread these things in your life, you could actually be laying the foundation where you bring destruction on yourself. So it's one of those things that can be dangerous that you have to learn how to understand and make sense of and manage. But that's the next thing. There's two things. Right, we, we want to be a counterculture, and one way to be counterculture is be a com- people that are committed to truth. And then to be a people who understand how to control their anger and what are the things that they should be angry about and shouldn't, and then how you deal with those things. But notice quickly the next thing it's a, a true counterculture is one that contributes generously to those who have need. You'll find it fascinating that Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work, labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal. And I think, isn't that fascinating? I mean, this church in Ephesus was one of the flagship early churches. It was planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy, and pastored by the apostle John. I mean, you don't get a better like leadership pedigree than that, and they still had thieves in them. They're still dealing with people. They're having people come over in Ephesus for a community group, and people are stealing things from other people. Say, no, you come over to somebody's house, you can't steal things from them. Let the thief no longer steal but let them work so that they can have something to contribute. And you might think, ah, oh, well, that's something, you know, we don't necessarily deal with. Well, maybe, maybe not. Because actually all of these things are threads where the more you pull on them, the more things in your own life can unravel. So you think, well, do we steal? Well, you know, actually, I think it was Forbes last year put out a report that says uh, the U.S. economy will lose $6.3 billion in the month of March because of March Madness, because of loss of productivity from workers, because they're watching the games and not doing their actual work. I was telling the kids, the kids this Wednesday at our youth group, you know, our society deems an educated citizenry as essential to a healthy democracy. So we spend a lot of money to educate you. You know, all throughout the country, it's roughly between ten and $18,000 per child per year, depending on location. Not sure what Florida is. I think it's somewhere in the round of 12000 per year per child. So, so you think about that. So the next time you're sitting in school and just daydreaming and not doing your work, you're actually stealing from the state because we're paying for you to be there. I don't know if that's going to motivate them to study harder or not, but it's, it's worth a try. <laughs> or you think about Pride. You know, Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer is nothing. Everything you have is a gift from God. But then when we, in our boastful uh, arrogance, feel like we achieved or accomplished things and bring the credit on ourselves, we're actually stealing credit. 
from God himself. And so maybe we can be more guilty of these things than we think. Let's look at the fourth one. A true counterculture is also constructive with its words. And this really is one of the most powerful. Look how it says, let, um, let no corrupting talk or filthy talk, polluted talk. This is actually an image for either, um, either fruit that's spoiled or garments that are soiled. So it says, let none of that type of stench come out of your mouth but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. So your words should be constructive. They should build people up, not bring them down. They shouldn't be rotten. It's really interesting because notice with, with the generosity, it says you're going to have people who have material needs, so it's your generosity that meets those. But then here with words is people are going to have kind of emotional needs. And it's your words that build them up and meet the need there. And so you think about for a moment, why are words so powerful? Why do they have such a power in us and over us? I mean, you've all heard the nursery rhyme, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And of course, everybody over the age of three knows that's just not true. They can be destructive. Why? Why do they have such power? There's a couple things. I think they have power just internally because they can get into you like nothing else can. It's just words that get into you. You all know you have an argument with a coworker, and then what are you doing all night? You're laying in bed replaying the argument. You're giving them all the things you should have said. And listen, you're always so smart and so quick-witted while you're laying in bed thinking about it. Why? It's because the words, they, they get into us. Proverbs 12, 17 says, Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There's a one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. So the image is your rash words where you just kind of throw them out. You're just like stabbing lyrical swords or just stabbing people. And, you know, I've never been stabbed by a sword, but uh, I think in general, you get stabbed in less than a few places. You can survive it, but you're going to have a scar. And that's the way these words, they can, they, can, they can get into you and wound you. But even the words of Proverbs says the power of life and death. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Powerful. They just get into you. But they're also powerful not just personally, but relationally. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Hello, can I help you? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Cynthia, do you mind uh, getting that? Do you want you want to sit down and? <laughs> Thanks for coming to see me. My kids sometimes do wonder. All right, what does Daddy actually do? So maybe this can help them get some context. So relationally, they can separate. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight: A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates friends. So people who go around whispering, they separate friends. And then socially, by the blessings of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, cities fall. Isn't that fascinating? That entire, like, kingdoms can fall because of the wicked use of words of the people in it. And you think, how could that be? 
I read an interesting, years ago, read an interesting study of the Soviet Union. And one of the things that argued, the guy who was writing said, the Soviet Union they knew was destined to fall when the people could no longer even trust the weather report. Said they had lost such confidence to hear true information that they didn't even trust the weather report. He said, a society just can't stand when it's experiencing that. And But what here is so interesting is here, it's words that aren't just true, it's words that are constructive, that heal, that build up. Because all of you know you can say true things in such a way that doesn't actually build up. You know, true words at the wrong time or in the wrong way still aren't helpful either. Saw this past week a fascinating interview with Hans Zimmer. And, uh, you know, he's the, the composer who's done all of, like, I think it was Star Wars and Batman, like every, every big picture hit in Hollywood. And he was talking about the different characters that he really loved. And actually, one of his favorite characters he's ever put a score to was the Joker in the Batman Begins uh, trilogy, Heath Ledger. And I don't know if you've seen that movie or are familiar with that character. Because what they were trying to do, in essence, that character is one of the most pure images of evil that has ever been portrayed on the screen. And Hans Zimmer, he said he loved the Joker, and he was telling all the different like musical things that he would do to try and make you sympathetic to him. And I thought, I had no idea. Like I was emotionally and internally being played by this music, and I didn't even know. Like he said, you have all these cliches in music, like whenever the bad guy comes on, they do the bass notes, or like, dun, 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 dun. And he said, it's so cliche, but we'd never do that. We had certain, certain musical notes we would hit when he was there to try and like, eliminate that connection in your mind. And he was asked, well, why did you love him so much? He said, he's the only character I've ever seen who always told the truth. And that got me thinking, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't like analyze the movie script. But starting thing, he said, he always told you what's true. And even if that's true, he still didn't bring health to his society. He still brought devastation and destruction all around. So it's not good enough even just to, as truth as you perceive it. You also have to build up. This is the point here. Give uh, grace to build up, to construct as fits the occasion. Anybody can say things that criticize and tear down. But to actually be constructive and build up, that actually requires supernatural grace. That requires a transformation of the heart. But then look at verse 30 because it's this fascinating, there, there's this rhythmic section to the whole thing. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And then you get the flood in verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Don't do these things. But be kind, tenderhearted, forgive one another as Christ forgave you. Do these things. But then right in the middle there's this interesting line, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't make him sad. And it's worth thinking about why. Why does he give this as almost like the ultimate motivation for how to live this life? Don't grieve. Because when you do all of these things, so, you know, it's one thing. It's like, I use truthful words because it's good for society. Don't let your anger be explosive because it's good for your heart. Um, you know, contribute to people who have need because it's good for people around you. But actually, he says, you need to do all these things because if you don't, you're making the Holy Spirit sad. Making him sad. Why would he be grieved? Well, it's because he loves God the Father. And these are God's children who are acting in a way that doesn't bring honor to the family. 
It's because he loves God the Son, and the Son died to redeem a transformed people, and they're not their own. They've been bought with a price, and he loves his own work, and it's his job to build the church and to uh, transform these people. So he's grieved. So this actually gets at the heart, which I think is probably the most potent, powerful motivation that we have to actually attack the soul cancer of these type behaviors that can live in a community. Because here's the question. If, if all these things are soul cancers for a community, is there some type of redemptive radiation that can blast it? Because when you're dealing with cancer, the whole trick is how do you kill the cells that are killing the person. You have to kill the cells, but not kill the person. And that's actually the redemptive trick. How can the Holy Spirit then uh, isolate and destroy the sin that's going to destroy us without destroying us in the process? Or think about this another way, maybe a helpful way to kind of pose the, the challenge. When, I, when we were in Alabama, when I was pastor in Roanoke, Alabama, one of the uh, just kind of parts of being a small country, you know, pastor at the First Baptist Church, it was just part of your job where you just went to everything, every kind of social event, you know, every graduation, every high school football game, every, you know, birthday party in town, you just, just part of part of the job. And so the first year we were there, went to the, the high school graduation, didn't really, I mean, we didn't have any kids in our our church who were graduating, didn't know too many people, but was there at the graduation. I sat down kind of on the side of the stadium by myself, and there's this young, uh, young African-American girl came and sat down beside me, and she, uh, I mean, she probably couldn't have been, I mean, mid-30s, and uh, we instantly had a connection because she was a fidgeter, and I'm a fidgeter, so she sat down, and her knee was bouncing, and my knee was bouncing, and you could tell she was really uncomfortable just being kind of in that uh, social setting. And then as they started to announce the names, and she got more fidgety and more anxious. And then I heard when the principal announced a certain name uh, and awarded him his diploma, she just went, oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And she just started crying. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I got smiled at her and said, has it been a long road? And she goes, oh, you have no idea. It's been a long road. I just smiled, and I said, he did it. He did it. And then she just kind of shook her head and said, he did it. <laughs> he did it. Yep, he did it. And you can't imagine what she had gone through in her life to get her there. Now, imagine if that same son that night wanted to go out and party with his friends. And the mom said, no, nope, I don't want you to go out. I don't like you hanging out with them. They're, they're, not, they're trouble for you. You are not allowed to go. And imagine what it would be like in that moment if he just exploded in anger at his mom and said, I can't believe this. I hate you. I can't wait to get out of this town. You never, do, you never allow me to do any of the things I want. And he just raged at his mom. What do you think she would feel in that moment? I mean, think about the anger that she instantly would feel because she would think, you have no idea what I have suffered and struggled and sought. How can you even say? So in that moment, her, her anger, her, and it would be a righteous, good anger. But then the whole question is, all right, how do I destroy the ungrateful ingratitude of the son without killing the son? 
Because her natural tendency might be, how dare you speak to me that way? I brought you in this world. I can take you out, and I'm about to. So how does she actually kill the sin without killing the son? And then you can actually backtrack because that's actually the deep problem that the cross of Christ is solving. How can he destroy the sin that's going to without killing the sinners? Because when we go back, every act of sin, every time we do these things, it's a similar act of cosmic ingratitude towards God. What the son did to her is comparable to what we do to the father every time we sin. So how can he actually destroy the sin in us without destroying us? And what happened on the cross is Christ, he bears God's anger so we don't have to. See, the cross is God's surgical strike to destroy the sin without destroying us. Because every single one of these acts, acts of lying against one another, acts against anger, the reason why you get angry because that the very fundamental thing that's happening in your heart at that moment is you're saying, my will be done. My will will be done in this situation. Even if it's just somebody cutting you off on I-4, it's my will be done. How dare anyone cut off my will? And all of these sinful acts grow out of the seed of my will be done. But our restoration and our healing and our only hope grows out of the seed of the one who did not say my will be done, but he said thy will will be done. Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine. And it's, it's anchoring our heart into that, that once that becomes the default motivation in every situation, he did it on a grand scale for us, and then we slowly and steadily learn how to do that on a small scale for one another, then we won't be the kind of people who are marked by falsehood and marked by lying and marked by anger and marked by greedy stealing. We'll be the kind of people whose default is not my will be done, but Thy will be done. And that would create the most powerful counterculture the world has ever seen. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be in a place where we speak the truth, and as we do, we're honoring the one who is truth himself. And when we are angered, we're angered by the right things, but then we act on it in a godly way because we're honoring the one who is righteous and holy and just. And be the kind of people who work joyfully and give generously so we can declare to everyone in the world that the God of this age, the materialism, materialistic mammon, the God of this world is not on the throne in our hearts. So we've been set free. And then we speak words of life knowing that we're building his kingdom word by word, brick by brick. One of the great things about living in our, where we live now and in, in this neighborhood is for our two-year-old son, we get hours of free entertainment. So he loves just sitting out, looking out the window and watching the construction workers build the houses around us. And there were some stonemasons yesterday who were building you know, part of one of the townhomes around us. And our son was just watching and uh, he's, we started saying it's just brick by brick, brick by brick, you build the house. You know, Christ is building his kingdom. It's brick by brick. And the way he's doing it is with our words. Every life-giving word is one little brick as he's building his kingdom. So as we pause and stop and turn our attention to prayer, we want to spend some time in just praying that these things will be true of us, that these things will mark us. So we ask the Holy Spirit to help us 
be people who are marked by all of these things. So, Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the power of the cross and the presence of your spirit who wants to do that uh, redemptive kind of radioactive work in our own hearts and in our community to uh, destroy the sinful soul cancers that will eat us alive and then help us to experience real life. So we pray right now for the first thing. We pray that you would help us to be people who are marked by truth. And I pray for anyone who's coming to this room and they're just wrestling in their mind. They know the right thing that they should do, but they're just wrestling with either how to do it or having the courage to do or to say. We pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would anchor them in uh, your son and empower them by your spirit so that in all things we could be people who are marked by your truth. And we pray for anyone who's come in this room now and they're experiencing the um, explosive effects of uncontrolled anger. We praise you for the gospel that it is the power to redeem and restore and recreate and transform. And so we ask that you would heal them. We ask you would give them healing and hope. And we ask that you would help us. We confess that sometimes we're angry about things we shouldn't be. And then we're not angry about things that we should. So we ask that you would help us, give us wisdom uh, to be able to know the difference and the courage to be able to act appropriately and respond. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be people who are not takers, who are constantly looking how to maximize what they can get from other people and always exercising their rights so they just take and take and take. And we pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who are marked by generous, joyful work where we're, we're givers instead of takers. And then we ask finally that you would help us be people whose words are sources of life. We know that it's so easy to critique and criticize and just those words can be like sword thrust. So I pray for anyone in this room who's come in and they've been wounded by rash words from people around them this week. We pray that uh, your grace would fill in the wound and it would be a healing ointment to revive them. And we ask that you help us to be people who are marked by true words. And Lord, now we want to take a few moments and we we want to pray for our community. We pray for our country. We lift up now the people in Pittsburgh who are experiencing just tremendous loss and, and tragedy. And we pray that your, your people would rally and they would show your love and forgiveness in this moment. We just, we, we pray that you would comfort the wounded and the grieving. And we pray for our leaders, our elected officials. We pray that you would give them the wisdom to know how to proceed. And when tragedy strikes, we ask that you would help them to, to be wise. And we pray that for your people, that in all things, we would uh, be marked by generous, loving humility. But we lift up uh, those people there that are grieving. It seems that every time we turn on the news, there's people in the country in different ways who are experiencing brokenness. And so we ask that you help us not to have hearts that are hard and not sensitive and aware of these things. But we want to specifically lift up the people in Pittsburgh who are, who are grieving at this moment. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name.